0: Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that features two authors in candid conversation. This episode debuts an occasional special series called Live At, wherein we record a live conversation at an independent bookstore. From Charleston, South Carolina, we bring you Live at Buxton Books with CNN political analyst Bakari Sellers, author of the New York Times bestseller, My Vanishing Country talking to CNN political analyst and New York Times national correspondent, Jonathan Martin. Set against the backdrop of the January 6th hearings, these two friends and colleagues discuss Jonathan's new book, This Will Not Pass, which he co-authored with Alexander Burns. This riveting work presents an inside look at the political events leading up to the January 6th insurrection, first-hand reporting inside the Capitol on that fateful day, and a detailed look at the political aftermath over the past 15 months. You will hear never-before-revealed stories, both hilarious and horrifying, of current figures who have been at the center of this political maelstrom. Inspiration starts now.
1: Good evening and welcome to Buxton Books. I am Polly Buxton, my husband Julian and I have the privilege of having this independent bookstore in our hometown. So thank you. I see so many of our good friends here that have supported us from the beginning and are continuing to support us. And we see some new faces. And so thank you. And welcome to Buxton Books. Enjoy. Thank you.
2: Thank you. you. So uh, I am Bukhari Sellers. And I'm from the big city of Denmark, South Carolina where we have three whole stoplights and a blinking light. And my mom and dad would always tell me, J-Mart, that, and that's what we affectionately call him. So if you ever, if you hear me say J-Mart, I'm talking about this guy right here. Um, But my mom and dad would always say that the two most important words in the English language are the words, thank you, and they're not nearly said enough. And I've been practicing recently giving people their flowers while they're living. Um, I think COVID has taught us that we have to begin to do more of that. And so I just wanted to start by, I have a lot of friends here, but. I want to just start by saying thank you to J Mark for writing an amazing book and being an amazing friend. And his parents are here. So give his parents a round of applause for. Whoa. Are you an only child?
3: No, I have a brother too.
2: Are you their favorite child?
3: They stop with me though because <laughs> they hit perfection. So I completely
2: was... understand why somebody would stop with you. All right. So uh, <laughs> this will not pass. This is kind of a cool book. And I want to I interject some, some personal uh, stuff in here, uh, Jay mart is pretty shameless. Uh, every answer he gives on CNN is that, yes, my book, This Will Not Pass, is out. And then he goes <laughs> into, but with the backdrop of this January 6th committees, and people were watching that, and it's still going on today, the the uh, testimony today was oh so powerful. Uh, this started out to be a campaign book, right. but it ain't a campaign book anymore. This is so much more. Did you imagine, Can you? did you know this book would blossom into what it is?
3: Uh, We hoped it would become something bigger, and uh, we're thrilled that it has. But um, i got to do my own uh, thank yous before we get started. Um, Let me start with uh, David Benedetto from Garden & Gun, who helped arrange this in the first place. Uh, The Buxtons, who are in the back. I think Becky Lacy, who was instrumental at every step. Uh, Great uh, of you guys uh, to do this for me. Charleston is a very uh, important place to me. My brother went to college here. My parents live nearby. I spent a lot of time here over the years. So this is a real thrill to be here at Buxton. This is an important day in our family. It's my mom's birthday. So if we could all give her a round of applause. Happy birthday, mom.
2: Yeah. He brought you to his book signing for your birthday. That's That sounds, sounds about like J. Martin. Uh, it's going to be a big night. A big night. Um,
3: but seriously, I thank you all, uh, friends and family, uh, for being here. Um, it means a lot. You know, so we, we started out originally in 2020 um, with the idea of um, doing a campaign book. We thought that it was going to be a fascinating race, uh, between Biden and Trump, maybe even an historic race between uh, Biden and Trump. Um, And we got this deal with Simon & Schuster. And as you know, a a cascade of extraordinary events uh, unfolded in 2020, one after the other. And after the election of 2020, it became pretty clear that we had more than a campaign book on our hands because most campaign books are, they end pretty neatly, right? There, there is a a scene in the victor's room, and there's a scene in the loser's room, and one calls the other, and they do the concession, and the, the you know the the nature of the call leaks, and there's balloons and streamers, and there's supporters. Some are sad, some are happy, uh, and then we all go on with democracy and the next election. Well, we obviously couldn't do that kind of an ending uh, to this book because there was no such concession, and so in November and December. We're starting to think this this is something bigger. And I was in the Capitol on January sixth, uh, and there's an entire chapter. You on were,
2: I yeah. mean, do we need to tell the FBI?
3: I was there working. Oh, okay, uh, sure. There, okay. There's an entire chapter on uh, on January sixth, uh, and uh, then at that point, it was really apparent to Alex uh, and myself. And I'm, I'm bummed Alex is not here uh, tonight, my great partner and colleague, in, in writing this book. Um, But we we had to go bigger. We had to go broader. We had to go uh, deeper uh, beyond one more conventional campaign book. And frankly, we didn't want to do one more Trump book either. Um, We wanted to do an account of history, what we thought would be the first draft of history, really, in these extraordinary times, 2020 and 2021. We wanted to capture, yes, the campaign, but also the aftermath of the campaign. And we wanted to do justice to the sixth, not tack it on as some kind of rushed, hurried epilogue, but make it an important, central part of the book. And we also wanted to sort of capture the, the impact of these last two years in both parties, because they've shaped uh, both parties. And so it was a bit of a gamble. And so we took a little while longer. There were about a half dozen books that came out before us in 2021, but we waited. And we captured all of 21 in both parties, got Biden's entire first year in the White House in this book, and uh, came out uh, in May, and obviously have been been thrilled uh, by the response. Um, You know, we knew that the, the January 6th material, including our audio tape of Kevin McCarthy, was going to be newsy and consequential. We didn't quite obviously know it would have uh, that immense of an impact. Still unfolding here, but we're, we're thrilled about that.
2: So one of the things I wanted to ask you that's somewhat fascinating to me is it seems as if we're still kind of living in the 2016 election. Yeah, you know that it seems like that election never really ended. Yes. and and I think that today it's very real for people because the Supreme Court came out with like 13 cases yeah. and. Uh, they did things like gut Miranda rights and then they uh, gutted or expanded the Second Amendment as we're moving towards gun control. They and so you see the impact of 2016. So my question to you is this book is really like three parts. Right. But and I've asked you this before, I wanted you to share, how did you know when to stop?
3: Now this is a real challenge, right? Because I mean, there's so much news today. I'm like, I mean, did the editor just say, just send me this shit today? Yeah. Like yeah. How I mean, there's a reason why it's called This Will Not Pass. This is still an ongoing, uh, active uh, story. So we kind of knew where to start. And so we begin in March of 2020, because two important things happen in March of 20. COVID hits uh, the American shores, and Biden gets the nomination. So two central sort of uh, uh, pl- plot lines. Um, and we, we go from there. You know, it was more difficult to figure out where, naturally, to stop it, because... There isn't an obvious place once you decide to go for for almost all of Biden's first year. Um, what we basically did was we just we just decided that we would capture you know through the end of January of this year, and so you get all of Biden's first year. We were nervous though, right? Because we didn't know what was going to happen with uh, Mansion and Cinema uh, and Biden's legislative agenda. I mean, obviously, Mansion said what he did in mid December, which. Uh, at the time at least, seemed to torpedo the build back better plan. but you know for all we knew, when we turned the book in February, uh, that could have been revived in March or April, and so that, that obviously would have been more challenging for us uh, that 's always the risk doing a book. you, you turn it in, obviously, any events uh, take place. Um, we were obviously happy that um, for, for our purposes at least that there was no, no more big uh, uh, political news between turning it in. In uh, publication. But no, th- th- that was really unclear for us, sort of how to put a bow on all this. Uh, but it worked out well. You know, uh, we've
2: seen uh, a lot, a lot of Trump books. We've yeah. seen uh, uh, Killian Conway just came out. Um, uh, Deborah Bricks yes. had a book. I think right. she sold like four copies. Yes. Uh, and you've seen a lot of, but this is like the first book that although it's a campaign book, it's the first Biden book, Yes. too. Yeah. And one of the unique things about this book is, in reading it, you have a lot of conversations amongst Democrats, right. and Democrats gossip just as much as Republicans. I've heard that, yeah. Um, so talk to me about the things people say in public versus the things people yes. say in private, and I do have to tell him that I... Tell the audience, in full disclosure, I was one of the gossipers. He took me out to dinner or lunch. He took me to Joe's Crab. I mean, it was expensive. It was nice. And I gave him everything he wanted. Okay, And so I'm not going to tell you what I said, but I I gave him everything he asked. But how does that work, in public versus private?
3: That, that? Sure. Uh, yeah, so we... Um, it was um, one of the more striking elements of this book as we got into the reporting and the writing uh, is that, you know, for, for seven years now we've heard all this chatter. You know, if you really knew what Republicans said about Donald Trump in private, man, they can't stand the guy. They, they think he's a buffoon and uh, they roll their eyes and they curse him in private. They just don't dare say it in public. We've all heard that a thousand times. Right. And what we wanted to do in this book is all right, we're going to actually tell you what they they do say uh, in private because we actually have uh, uh, detailed notes and recordings of those conversations. Uh, And I think that's important, obviously, for purposes of journalism. I think it's also important for history. You know, it it sounds perhaps immodest, but one of the things we wanted to do with this book was offer the building blocks for future historians who are going to be studying this period in American history 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. And we really wanted to have... um, as tight and as accurate of a narrative of, of these years as possible, and in doing that, you have to have the goods. You have to have you know the actual conversations, uh, the conference calls, the Zooms, the meetings as they happen. And we have an author's note at the start of the book about this. That if you see like you know quotes and conversations, like that's because we have uh, that account. Um, we've all read books uh, over the years about history and politics, where you, you'll see you sort of paragraph upon paragraph of like verbatim dialogue, uh, and you're like, "Wow, that's pretty incredible uh, inside the room." Uh, and then you realize like it's a based upon like memories of conversations from six months earlier. And uh, I don't know about you, but I can't recall like a verbatim conversation a half an hour ago. Uh, and so we really strive to get. Uh, contemporaneous notes or audio of these conversations because, yes, we wanted to show uh, what Republicans are saying actually about Donald Trump, especially in the days before and after January 6th, which we're hearing a lot about now in these congressional hearings. And uh, it's in the book there um, how they were grappling with the fallout from January 6th and Kevin McCarthy desperate to get Trump out of office uh, as fast as possible. There was not a debate about Trump's culpability Uh, in those days. It was not about, well, you know, did he really bear the blame for this? No, but the conversation was, this is a disaster for us, and we have got to stop the bleeding, um, and we can't, you know, we can't afford another attack. We have to get Trump out. Uh, What's the best way to do that? Is it the 25th Amendment? Uh, Is it calling for him to resign as he once floated? Uh, Is it impeachment? That was the nature of the conversation. With Democrats, it's a little more complicated, uh, Bakari, but as you know, um, there were a series of memos that we we have in this book from Biden's chief pollster, a guy named John Anzalone, who, starting in April of 21, is sounding the alarm to Biden uh, about a handful of issues that will, I think, bring a bell in this room. Uh, Immigration crime, and yes, inflation. And it is saying, you know, these are challenging issues that we're seeing more and more show up in the polling, and we gotta address this stuff. And obviously, uh, that, that plea fell on deaf ears. And I think, so for, for, for Democrats, uh, there's a reluctance to say, I think, on some issues uh, in public what they actually believe in private, because it's just as awkward, giving, uh, given um, the nature of the coalition. So I think we, we sort of like, capture in both parties Uh, that kind of like private conversation that is not often what you see in public.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the backdrop of of the Democratic nominee for governor in South Carolina saying some things loudly uh, today that others usually say in private about Joe Biden's.
3: That was extraordinary in fact i 'm working on the story i don 't know now. if it's good
2: politics we'll see, but it was an extraordinary moment
3: so i 'm working on a story now because i'm i 'm back to my day job but um Joe Cunningham, who of course had this district uh, for for a term between eighteen and twenty is now the democratic nominee for governor, has to come out with an ad and now is said today on national television on on c n n um, our network he said uh he thinks Joe Biden should not run for for reelection in 2024 and should cede to somebody.
2: We, we we will we'll get back to that. He referred to it as a geriatric oligarchy.
3: Okay, so uh, let's. There's somebody in Orangeburg who may have some thoughts about that too.
2: He's in Santee. We'll move on.
3: So uh, let's talk about
2: let's talk about these uh, tapes. But, but
3: By the way, this is an important point, though, right? Because we capture this in the book. Joe Biden is basically an emergency candidate. He's a bridge. Yeah, and by the way, Biden embraces that label, at least in 2020. I mean, Biden cast himself as, I can stop Trump. That is priority one, two, and three for Democrats, period, the end. That's the entire appeal of his candidacy. And after he wins South Carolina big and then wraps up effectively the nomination four days later on Super Tuesday, he's off to the races. But the entire rationale for his candidacy was, beat Trump. It was nothing beyond that. And what Democrats weren't weighing in the spring of 2020 when COVID has started to arrive in America is, oh, so if we do nominate Joe Biden, we could beat Trump, but you know what? Let's do the math here. In 2024, Biden would be 81 going on 82. And would he then run for re-election? Or would he stand down? And who would be the VP? And would that person then run? Or th- th- those things, Picari, weren't taken into account. And we have an entire chapter on the VP selection process, too, yeah. in 2020.
2: You got a lot of insight into that.
3: Yeah, we have a lot of insight on that. Yeah, very suspicious.
4: Um,
3: <laughs> look, I, the, the choice to put Kamala Harris on the ticket was made entirely for uh, short-term uh, reasons of politics, for the same reason that Biden was the nominee. Who can help us beat Trump? That was it. Th- that was the entire reason. It was not, well, what's her portfolio gonna be when she's there in uh, the White House? Uh, uh, would she be the nominee for us in 24 or 28? Would Biden pass the baton? None of that is talked about. It's entirely, we've gotta stop Trump. Uh, who can who can help us? And, um, and to uh, the vice president's credit, uh, she gets uh, picked, has two great first days that raise a lot of money. Uh, she had one debate that was largely uh, memorable because there was a fly on Pence's head. So to her credit, like, you know, she, it was a, uh, you know, um, do no harm pick because that's always the nature of VP picks, and it worked. But uh, all these questions now were not taken into consideration uh, because that bill was to come down the road, and now here we are in summer of 22, and Democrats see Trump in the wings, and they're starting to wonder, oh, what should we do about the next time around? And here we go, so.
2: Those discussions are starting to happen more and more, and they have to happen, because November 2022 will be here really quickly.
3: And the second the midterms end, the clock starts running.
2: Time into some of your reporting, isn't it true that the 45th president of the United States is considering announcing his campaign this summer?
3: Yeah. and so. This is the other thing, is that you know, Trump may announce his candidacy ahead of time. So, look, if Trump announces this year, uh, let's say Trump announces this summer, totally possible that these January 6th hearings push Trump over the line and he says, you know, forget it, I'm laying down a marker, I'm going to file and I'm going to enter the race. If that happens on the heels of a Roe versus Wade decision, I mean, it does a lot in American politics, uh, but one thing it does, is it definitely- That missed. should be tomorrow. Uh, next week, probably, right? It starts the clock on these questions about Biden and who do we nominate in '24, right?
2: Correct. Uh, let's talk about, I mean, one of the unique things about it, and one of the things now, I, you know, when, when people have books, they always send you these text messages about, my cover's coming out today. Can you post my cover on Twitter? Or can you say something nice about it? The, <laughs> what, what, what popped up first to me about your book was our good friend, uh, the President of the United States from Arizona, uh, Kirsten Cinema uh and um she she refuted some of the things oh, that yes. you were that you and Alex had said. a good eye. Yes, yes. And then you had the big Mac Daddy tape of Kevin McCarthy. What's going on there?
3: This was so interesting. Uh one of the first things that came out from the book was we we have uh, Senator Sinema at a fundraiser um talking very candidly uh and uh, telling them uh, basically a bunch of Republican lobbyists that uh, Andy Biggs, whose name you probably have heard recently in the January 6th hearing, is actually a good guy if you get to know him, right? Which, to say the least, doesn't go over well in Democratic circles. Um, so the cinema office put out a kind of a semi-70% denial about our reporting from the book. And, you know, we made very clear after that denial came out, that semi-denial came out, Uh, that we have her on tape saying that, okay? And that, I thought, got picked up pretty widely. You obviously saw that. Uh, Apparently, Kevin McCarthy did not see that uh, (laughs) uh, reference because when we subsequently came out with a reporting about Kevin McCarthy, uh, he flatly denied uh, our reporting. In fact, he impugned our integrity and and questioned us um, and put out a statement in his own name uh, attacking us. And to this day, Bakari, the only person who has flatly denied anything in this book is named Kevin McCarthy. So
2: Well, that didn't go over well for him.
3: You have so many different <laughs> you
2: have so many different like characters in politics. What, what, uh, what, what characters stood out to you the most? And, and what characters do you think made this book what it
3: is? This is one of the other things that we felt strongly about this book is that a lot of narratives about American politics are anchored around, Uh, either campaigns or presidents, right? That's usually the option. Um, And maybe you get like three or four senior campaign advisors who are uh, players, but you don't get much beyond that. Like we really wanted to sort of cast a wider net and we wanted to introduce people to a broader array of people. Yes, we cover Trump and Biden and the presidents and their staff, but like also, we feel like it's important to really go deep on Congress because they are so important uh, in this period. And, you know, Schumer and McConnell, uh, Pelosi and McCarthy, I feel like most Americans who are focused on uh, civics or public affairs have a sort of broad uh, brush uh, appreciation for who they are. But we really go deeper into their character, and I think, in a way that you won't find in most political uh, books at in Congress, you know, because of COVID, the Washington Bureau of the New York Times was closed for basically the last two years. And we have a very small condo in DC that's not conducive to a married couple uh, staying together all day uh, in there. And so I had no choice but to spend a lot of time in the Capitol uh, because I really had nowhere to go. And so for the last two years, uh, I was basically roaming the halls of the Capitol. And so a lot of this book is from doing reporting when I just happened. Uh, to be there because I had no office to go to uh, during COVID, and you would just pick stuff up in the halls of Congress uh, simply being there. And I just happened to be there on January 6th. I was in Georgia on the 5th. As you'll recall, there was memorably the, the runoff for the two Senate seats um, to decide to control the Senate. And that was the big story of the moment was who's going to control the Senate. But I wanted to be in place on the 6th, because I knew at least symbolically it was going to be an important story. And I wanted to be there in place. And I took the last flight from Atlanta back to DC on the night of the 5th. And I knew something was up, because I get on the plane, and it's a rowdy bunch of customers. They're right? calling insurrection. And this is, there you go. And they got, they, you know, they're not wearing their masks. They're, uh, they're drinking a lot. And I'm like, this is not your average flight into DCA at like 930 at night, in, in my experience. And that was kind of a tip off. Um, but then I, I was working on a sort of a larger story about how, you know, on Trump's watch, the Republicans had lost the presidency, the House, and now the Senate because of George the previous day. And I'm working away on that story in the Senate gallery. The Senate gallery is a warren of old phone booths, desks, um, uh, where the press works in the Capitol. And I heard somebody yell that they pulled Pence from the chair, which means that Pence, who was presiding over the Senate that day, was pulled by his Secret Service detail out of the the dais, which never happens. And so I run to the the um, there's like six six sort of balcony seats overlooking the Senate dais behind uh, the chamber, and I ran down there to get a look at it. And from that point on, it was it was chaos, right? The uh, policemen were on the floor, guns drawn. They locked the doors at first, and the Senate chamber. We didn't know what was going on because we're in, in the building. Uh, and then we start getting texts and emails from you know, relatives and and sources, and something's obviously up. Thank God, uh, the, uh, f- the the security folks on the floor decided to evacuate the senators. And before they did, they looked up at the gallery, that sort of you know balcony seats where, where the press was, was all sitting, and they said, "Go to the basement." And so I ran to the elevator, hit the B button for basement, and come out of the basement elevator. And there is the entire Senate being dragged, some physically. It's not a very young bunch of people, the U.S. Senate. Uh,
2: <laughs> there you go again. Exactly. Okay. Uh, it's exactly. amazing how this conversation and, uh, comes right back home, that, doesn't it?
3: And uh, follow them into the tunnels, uh, which obviously connect uh, the Capitol with. The entire Senate and House uh, office complex, and I just followed the senators. and I, I knew a bunch of them, and I, I just, you know wherever they're going, I'm going to go too. Uh, um, you know, wasn't invited. It uh, wasn't the last time uh, or the first time that I've gone somewhere I wasn't invited, but I just turned my tape recorder on and followed the senators and went to a holding room and stayed there all day with the entire Senate in the holding room, and uh, that's an entire chapter in the book there. Um, and that was an extraordinary. But uh, did you moment. tell your parents you were okay? That, that, they knew I was fine. Yeah. Yeah, the day was fine. Um, what was memorable about that experience was well, two things. One, as the day went on, the firepower outside the room. So we were in the heart center of office building uh, in this holding room that you probably have seen before because it's an enormous hearing room. And there have been Supreme Court confirmation hearings there. The Iran Contra hearing were held there. Uh, anyways, during the course of the day, the firepower outside the room got. Uh, more and more and more impressive. So you start with Capitol Police with, you know, side arms, And then they bring in some, I guess, FBI who have a kind of like semi-camo. Uh, and then at day's end, they have the DC National Guard with like, you know, machine guns in their hands. And so we're there all day, go back to the Capitol uh, that night under uh, extraordinarily heavy guard. The Capitol is ransacked. My, my feet are sticking to the ground because there's dirt and grime all over the floor. There's trash everywhere, there's blood. Uh, it was a total mess. Uh, extraordinary to see the seat of government uh, in that way. And obviously, we know what happened. They uh, finished their work, and uh, Biden was ratified as president. And so late that night, I'm leaving the Capitol. And it's about 1 in the morning, maybe 1.30 at this point. And I go to the Senate side of the Capitol on the first floor. And I know the elevator that Mitch McConnell comes out of when he leaves the Capitol at night. Because McConnell had polio as a child, and so he has a hard time walking downstairs because of his legs. And so he takes the elevator down. And so I just planted myself out to the elevator on the off chance that McConnell would come out of that elevator to go home. And sure enough, at 1.30 in the morning, the elevator opens up, and there's Mitch McConnell. And I'm the only reporter standing in the hallway. And so McConnell sees me, and he beckons me over. uh, And before I can even ask a question, he asked me a question. He's looking for intelligence. He says what are you hearing about the 25th Amendment? Because McConnell wants to know, hey, is there talk in the Trump cabinet about getting him out of office here, like, ASAP, right? And I told him what I had heard. Uh, Lindsey Graham, the senior senator here from South Carolina, had called the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, earlier that day and said, if you don't tell Trump to tell these people to go the fuck home, we're going to call for the 25th. um, and if you remember, that sounded like Lindsay a little
2: bit too <laughs>
3: uh, if you remember, Trump recorded multiple versions of that video telling people to go home, and he finally obviously they they cut the third or fourth one, and put it out there uh in part because folks like Lindsay were saying Trump has to tell his people to go home anyways, so then I asked McConnell because i I got him right here uh. I know it was an historic day. The previous day, he had lost the Senate majority, which obviously he cares uh, immensely about. And now this day, his, his capital has been ransacked. There's two things in, in public life that McConnell cares more about than anything else. One is uh, keeping the majority power. The other thing is the capital, the institution itself. And in two days here, um, he's seen both um, uh, uh, devastated. And so I said, how are you feeling? Like. How does this make you feel? Which is not a question you often hear Mitch McConnell being asked. He's not a Barbara Walters type uh, figure where you put him on the couch very, very much. But it felt appropriate in the moment. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I feel exhilarated. I said, you feel exhilarated? How could you feel exhilarated after the last two days? He said, he, meaning Trump, he said, he put a gun to his head and he pulled the trigger. And now he's totally discredited, talking about Trump. Because in that moment, everybody in the Republican Party, everybody in politics thought, oh, well, surely this is it, right? I mean, Trump incited a mob that ransacked the Capitol. There's no way he can come back from this. And so for people like McConnell, who had tolerated Trump for four years, used him to his end, got three justices to the court, got a big tax cut, but was always kind of embarrassed by him and had no real use for him. To McConnell, this is finally it. I can wash my hands of the guy and move on. And McConnell tells me that. He feels liberated, and he walks out the door into the, the, the early morning believing that the Trump era has finally ended.
2: And the book is titled This Will Not Pass because it seems as if this <laughs> is not over. So, based
3: We're still the- loving it. Yeah, I mean.
2: So what, what's, I mean, yeah. what do you see? I mean, this isn't necessarily in the book, or maybe it's part two, right. but, but what can we infer? In, in this kind of weird, this book, your tapes of particularly McCarthy yeah. may prevent McCarthy from being the next Speaker of the House.
3: Yeah. So Trump, interestingly, the last few days has very publicly lambasted McCarthy for not having Republicans, Republicans on, the on January that 6th. January yep. 6th commission, which has been obviously hurtful for Trump because there's nobody there defending him. And he's lashed out. And he's been asked about McCarthy. And he says publicly he's not committed to supporting him for speaker, which is the entire point of McCarthy trying to like, get, get right with Trump. You know, we, As we capture in the book, McCarthy uh, talks tough after the 6th. But before January is over, he's back at Mar-a-Lago trying to um, uh, make amends with Trump. Uh, but no good deed goes uh, uh, unpunished for Kevin McCarthy, and now he's paying a price for that. Look, th- this is not about uh, yesterday. Th- this is not uh, uh, sort of in the, um, the you know uh, you know yellowing pages uh, of history. This is a clear and present uh, uh, danger to American democracy. To borrow a phrase we heard recently, um, this is an ongoing story. Uh, we're still living this crisis of American democracy. The fact is that one of the two parties is largely beholden to somebody uh, who just um, you know, doesn't really care about American norms and institutions and um, tried to overturn an election and would uh, clearly uh, do so again if he could. Um, so that obviously is why it's still going on.
2: It's crazy how all of this kind of plays in together. Recently, the University of New Hampshire just had a new poll to come out. And in that poll, it showed that Ron DeSantis actually was topping Trump. And a lot of it has to do with the cascade of events that's going on, including this book, the hearings. It right. just seems and Which,
3: by the way, that kind of poll, which I can guarantee you caught the attention of our former president, uh, combined with the January 6th hearings, combined with Trump losing some of these primaries, uh, in which he has endorsed uh, candidates in the midterms, the combination of those things. You know,
2: including think, right here.
3: And Nancy Mays, right. Correct. Could, could clearly accelerate his timetable um, to get in the race. Uh, I'll just say real fast, speaking of the former president, we interviewed the former president at Mar-a-Lago in April of 2021, three months after he left office. And what was extraordinary about it was it was a very familiar archetype, but it just wasn't one that we've ever seen in America. And by that, I mean the exiled former president uh, in his tropical... Uh, a recluse, plotting his return to the Capitol. Like We know that story. We just haven't seen it in American politics. But that was very much the feeling. We pulled up to Mar-a-Lago, which is this extraordinary um, property that was once the home of Marjorie Meriwether Post uh, uh, in West Palm Beach, and there's one lady. Wait a minute.
2: Mar-a-Lago was a home to one person?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: A different type of money. A lot of
3: bathrooms. So you pull up there, and there's one lady holding a clipboard. And, like, there's one Secret Service agent sort of barely paying attention, and they, like, take the clipboard, uh, name, uh, you know, guns in the car, no, all right, go ahead. And it's like, oh, okay, all right. And, like, this feels very, and there's palm trees swaying in the wind, and it's like, okay, I think I saw a movie about this once, um, but the Perones. Um, so we, we pull up there, and that's already extraordinary enough, but what was, it's hard not to laugh, uh, but... He schedules the interview for 4 p.m., and we realized soon after why he did that, because he wraps up at about 5.15, and what's happening in South Florida at 5.15 in a private club? It's the early bird special, right? Because at that at that moment, he's being received by all of his club members. You keep coming back to a geriatric. Yeah, I do. It's a recurring oh, the theme hit. here. It's like this a is our country a right now, game. our gerontocracy. <laughs> so... <laughs> The the, the interview is being conducted in the lobby of his club. And so by 515, we're wrapping up the interview. People are walking in. They're setting up the chafing dishes. They're putting out the shrimp cocktail. The bar is open. uh, And people are walking up. And Trump immediately returns to his old line of work. He's back to being the maitre d' in chief. I kid you not. He's saying, oh my gosh, you got your hair done. It looks great. By the way, it's prime rib night. You got to try it out over here. Don't forget the green beans, shrimp cocktail here. And it's like, you had nuclear codes a half an hour ago, man. And like, you're, now, you're now pushing prime rib on us? Uh, that was, it. But we realized the deeper reason. He wanted to see us. All right. He wanted his members to see us interviewing him, because that would tell the members he's still got it. He's still being sought out by journalists. All right? He's still a big deal. And he wanted us, the journalists, to see the members kissing his ring, because that would convey to us, oh, he still has this following down here. He's not disgraced. He's not discredited. And in fact, he still has these paying members of his club coming to see him. And that, that was, uh, I thought, very, very revealing. Um, the other thing I'll just mention really fast, we're, we're, we're during the interview itself. Lindsey Graham calls Trump on his cell phone during the course of the interview. And you know, most people, when your cell phone rings, like right now, you would either send us a voicemail, uh, or you would like, stand up and, and leave the room. Not Donald Trump. Uh, he picks up the phone, sees that it's Lindsey. Ah, enters it, puts it on speaker, and <laughs> conducts the conversation with Lindsey Graham while Alex and I are sitting right there. On the record. And doesn't tell Lindsey Graham that there's two journalists sitting right there. <laughs> because that's how Trump rolls. And so eventually, Trump says, hey, by the way, Lindsey, I got two journalists here from The New York Times. Yeah, Jonathan Martin and Alex Byrne. Yeah, real beauties. Uh, and, uh, and you can hear Lindsey like, well. Uh, and he didn't say anything. They were just shooting the bull about Herschel Walker, actually, because they were trying to recruit Herschel Walker into the Senate race in Georgia, and Lindsey was calling, ah, I think we're going to get him. He's, he's feeling pretty good about this. And so, but Trump has an idea in mind, because he wants Lindsey, and now that Lindsey's told Lindsey that we're sitting there, says, hey, Lindsey, tell these two guys, how important is my endorsement in these primaries? And so Lindsey immediately picks up what Trump wants, says, guys, let me tell you, I've been around politics now for 40 years, this is bigger than Reagan, this guy's endorsement is gold, he just, hold on, okay. And so we're like, all right, sounds good, got it. But Trump's not done. He then says, hey, Lindsay, tell him about my golf game. And so at this point, like, Lindsay knows what's up. But it's like one of those late night infomercials where it's like, look, I didn't believe that these protein pills were real either. But, man, I've been trying in the last two weeks. I feel younger than ever, right? So Lindsay's like, guys, I thought it was all bullshit, too. But then I went out and played around with them. And let me tell you, this guy's a real big hitter. And uh, yeah, Trump is is doing one of these deals where he's just like, holding the phone up like this and smiling. You know, it's on speaker. And uh, we get back in the car, and we're leaving the estate that night.
2: With the primary up and, to go.
3: Uh, that's a separate story. And, <laughs> we, uh, and we call Lindsay up. And you know, are like, yeah, is he gone? Yeah, he's gone. So it's uh, Lucy, deadpan, says, yep, well, Trump's a great conversationalist (laughs) when it's about him. (laughs) Um, No, we did not have the prime rib. This is one more trick that we learned. At the end of the interview, Trump has this this tactic where you're walking out, and he stops you and says, by the way, guys, do you want to stay for dinner? And it's supposed to be like a spontaneous, you know, very gracious invitation. We knew that it was premeditated, though, because all the other journalists who had been down there had gotten the same, uh, had gotten the same play, and so we were ready for it, all right? And Alex had just had a child. Uh, it was his first trip since, since having a kid, and so he was going back uh, on a flight and had, had an easy excuse, and I just kind of followed suit. What he's saying is this. He doesn't want you to have dinner with him at his table like you would conventionally think he would. What he means is... Will you go out to the patio and sit at a different table 30 feet away and watch me while I have dinner, and the whole night I'm received by my guest. And I pose for pictures, and they genuflect before me. Again, because he wants to see people come engage him. And so, like, uh, the idea of spending, like, $75 for, you know, a filet at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, you weren't getting it for free. No, I mean, he wasn't was paying for it. I mean, uh, watch, we know anything. Uh, that, to watch... So we, we, uh, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. But we, we have to get running. running. So.
2: If anybody wants to know the, the popularity of Donald Trump in that same uni- University of New Hampshire poll, he was polling. He was, if you turn the page and look at the cross tabs, he was 16% of everybody else who watched uh, Fox News and 14% of everybody, ahead of everybody else who listened to conservative radio. So he ain't going nowhere no time soon. With that, opening up for yeah, questions. Let's
3: do a few questions.
0: Before we get to the questions, here are two brief messages from our sponsors.
1: Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers, so you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type, and once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not, and it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today.
0: Buxton Books
3: is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors Podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street. And we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United
4: States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books.
0: Now let's return to the audience questions.
4: First, thank you both for being here. Um... A great book um I've, i think i've read all the the campaign books so to speak in that in this time period and uh yours came out after most of the yeah. others did and i thought well do i really want to read right, another one right, right. you know and i did and it was worth it so everybody in here Good should plug. if you're yeah everybody should better than the woodward book your pain will be <laughs> in the back there exactly. but thank you thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah. obviously it's a depressing time and a concerning time um i think that it's upsetting to all of us to have to live through it but one of the th- parts of the book that made me smile it made me happy. Strangely enough, was go back to the to the holding room in the Senate on January sixth. A, uh, a higher up and the uh, capital security comes in to talk about uh, getting everybody out of there. Right. And our Senator Lindsey Graham decides that's a great time for him to get up and and cause right. a scene. And I was yes. wondering if you could talk about yeah. what he was saying and the reaction that sure. he got, in particular from the Senator from Ohio.
3: Okay. All right. Well, that, that's a good that's a good cue. Um, and thank you, thank you for for the plug. Lachlan, I appreciate it. Um, So, during the course of that afternoon, the Capitol Police officers, God love them, were were trying to keep the senators updated as to what was going on, but they didn't have a lot of information. This is the fog of war. And, you know, there were shots fired in the house. We later know what happened, obviously, outside the speaker's lobby where the uh, woman was killed. And they, so every, you know, 20 minutes or so the Capitol Police would Go to the front of the room and try to update the senators as to what was happening. And so, during one of those updates, Capitol police officer said, "We're not sure what's happened. We're we're trying to get folks out. We're working on this, but please relax, have some water." He's just buying time, right? He didn't have any information. And so, Lindsey uh, Grant decides to interrupt them, and he says, "I don't have the exact quote, um, but it's in there. It's on tape." He says. Do whatever it takes. This is the American seat of government. Use any force necessary. Get them out of our Capitol, right? Talking to the Capitol Police. Interrupting the Capitol Police officer's briefing. And you can hear the groans as he's doing it. And Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, in the back of the room, yells out, shut up, Lindsay. (laughs) And then somebody else who I wasn't 100% sure who it was when I heard the voice, and so that person's name is not in the book. I think I know who it was. Said. There's no cameras here, Lindsey, which which obviously was an intimation about the senator's uh, pension for um, for TV cameras, uh, which I think the two of us can't really talk about because we're pretty shameless ourselves. Uh, But no, that moment though was was extraordinary. And on a more serious note, it did capture, I think, in that moment, the Republican Party um, had no sympathy for the rioters at all in that building. I mean, those people were. Ransacking the U.S. Capitol and threatening their lives, uh, and so you know, the, the the urging to use any force necessary to remove them uh, was how it sounds. Uh, yeah. If um, Biden does not run, yes, um,
2: are the Democrats set up to do another circular s- firing squad <laughs> like the Republicans did?
3: Well, of course. So we, yeah, of course, uh, Alex and I have been um, spending a lot of time on the road since this book came out on May 3rd, been all over the country. And I can tell you at every event, we've gotten either one or both of these questions. Uh, Will Trump run again and will Biden run again? Uh, So um, the streak is alive. Uh, and It's an important question and I'm glad you asked. Look, Biden has told people privately, Uh, he's said publicly, that he's gonna run for re-election. He does not wanna say it explicitly in file papers because to do so, you would have to basically start raising money now, it would create a financial uh, burden that they don't wanna invite. They also wanna focus on the midterm elections. This is traditional for every incumbent president save save for Trump. Obama did not formally announce until April of 2011. That is the tradition. Now, it's different for Biden and there's skepticism about whether or not Biden's actually gonna run because Turns eighty later this year. He'll be eighty-two. Should he uh, run for reelection in November of twenty-four? And so there, there's there's questions about whether or not Biden's going to run. And the campaign
2: will be different, right? Because, uh, the will be different, right? because people forget right. that, right. and you you great. do write about it. But the campaign was no. This was is a really important point. The hard raises is, really
3: important is, important is you know, it, Biden benefited from the fact that COVID effectively stopped the campaign, as we know it. There was no real campaign. I, you know I was covering the two conventions from. Uh, account because they were all via via um, uh, the internet and so you know two people who are uh, prone to make mistakes when speaking off the cuff Joe Biden and Kamala Harris it was a it was a sort of saving grace for them to not face uh, a rope line really at any point in the campaign where you're where you're uh, you know uh, hearing shouted questions at you uh, that was great for Biden and so it would not be the same that's right um, in 2024 now. We know about the Rose Garden strategy and uh, incumbent presidents try to avoid getting down in the muck by sort of using the power of the office. And I think Biden will certainly try to do that if he does run. But look, if he doesn't run, to answer your question, I think uh, Picari's favorite vice president will certainly be a formidable candidate, Kamala Harris, uh, uh, if she gets in the race. I think she'll also have competition. I think you'll see a range uh, of Democrats look at it, uh, governors, senators, um, perhaps some cabinet members. Um, you have to look at who's run before. That's the surest sign uh, that they're interested uh, in the job. Um, there's an old James Carville line. I shouldn't mention in front of my parents here, but uh, um, close your ears. They said running for president is like having said, sex. You don't just do, like um, sex. just do it once. Um, and so once. if you're if you're Amy Klobuchar um, or if you're Elizabeth Warren, uh, Warren or Bernie uh, Sanders, uh, uh, Corey, Corey Booker. Seven, I mean, I just mentioned the folks before, levels. right? Yeah. I oh, I was exactly, coming back to your right. theme of the day. But uh, seriously, exactly. I think all those folks would look at it. Gina Raimondo. Pete Buttigieg, both in the cabinet. Mitch Landrew, also yeah, Mitch, in the cabinet. Mitch Andrew, Jared, Brown, Jared Brown, possibly. Uh, and the governors uh, Gavin Newsom, California. Jimmy Pritzker from Illinois. Phil Murphy from New Jersey. Roy that Cooper that from that North Carolina. That the, the, I was about to say that's the uh, one with the, be the best a opportunity. range of, 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 of folks look at it. If Stacey Abrams or Raphael went, Warnock wins man. next door Warnock in Georgia, I think either of them would be formidable. And I won't float Bakari Sellers just yet, but maybe maybe give you a drink, and I'll do that. Yeah, go ahead. I can't even beat I
2: can't, I can't even <laughs> beat Henry McMaster. <laughs> let alone I would, president. I would like to know how Lindsey
0: Graham has any credibility with anybody when he was to serve under with his constitutional duty to be an impartial juror. But prior to the weekend before the hearings about the impeachment, he was down at Mar-a-Lago. And on Sunday he was on Fox News. And Monday, the first day of the hearings, he was calling Trump to say, "No problems." Yeah. That is not just reprehensible. Yeah. That's something that is major. Yeah. breaking yeah. of the law.
2: Can, can I piggyback on your question? Because I want maybe one of the things that's fascinating is the different personalities and characters. So if you can tell us just not just from this yeah. book but your experience, like people really right. hate TED. Like, he, he's the most hated person up there. Um, and then you probably have Holly and a few others. But talk about the relationship that our senator has with his colleagues, because he's decently Yeah, so respected.
3: look, um, this obviously is not a room where Lindsey Graham would probably find a, t- a ton of votes anymore. Um, but uh, I think... When it comes to being a juror, I think impeachment is an inherently political vote. And um, this is not something where they're all wearing black robes. It's not a sanctuary. They're politicians taking a political vote. So his being a partial or impartial, I I just think that you can't even suggest that a politician um, taking an impeachment vote, yay or nay, Is in any respect an impartial juror. I just, I think that's uh, sort of of the worst vote I ever
2: made. The worst vote I ever made in the South Carolina legislature was to vote to impeach Mark Sanders. I shouldn't have
3: done it. Why?
2: I I shouldn't have done it. it. I was one of the the six that did it, but I thought it was purely a political vote and the facts didn't bear out impeachment. Because I made a political Um, decision.
3: But you know, Lindsey Graham, though, is somebody who um, wants to be uh, in the room where. Choices are made and decisions are hashed out. And so, uh, obviously, um, you know, he was a Trump ally for a long time, but now he's one of the 10 Republicans who work to cut a deal uh, on this gun bill. Um, he's willing to sort of do deals. He's willing to um, break with his party at times uh, to try to do things. And so because of that, people like Chris Murphy from Connecticut, a Democrat, are willing to try to work with him because, in today's you know, Senate, there's not a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who are that eager to cut, cut um, compromise.
2: And Jim Clyburn just partnered with them to get Michelle Childs on the Tenth Circuit, which is the most And Lindsey Graham, I think there. if
3: Michelle Childs had been nominated to the Supreme Court, I think Lindsey Graham would have tried to deliver eight to ten Republican votes for, for her uh, for the Supreme Court. I'm not sure they, they could have gotten eight to ten Republicans, but you could have come close, I think.
1: We have one more question.
2: So judging from all of this, where do you think that all of this, because
3: I mean, I know you know history as well as current politics. But so what do you think that this bodes for us as a future, as a republic? Oh, man, how much time do we have? You know, look, it's um, I don't have a lot of optimism for the short to medium term, because I think that the incentive structure today in American politics is so geared toward more polarization, more tribalism, more more points being scored by trying to confront the opposition that 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 just gets politicians more attention, more money, more more likes, more retweets, right? I I'm, I'm not sure how that uh, is reversed. You know, I we're just not going to return to a system where, you know, everybody gets their news from the newspaper on their driveway in the morning or at 6:30 at night on the evening news those days are largely over, and I think that's a huge driver uh, of polarization, the fact that we're living in separate information silos uh, as a country. Um, So I think in the short to medium term, look, I I think we're going to face enormous challenges um, because of the polarization that our politics now Uh, reflect because the politicians are now largely answering to their flanks, right? The the primary is the biggest driver of American politics today um, because that's where politicians are thinking about first. There was a long period after World War II where Politicians were re- reflecting the will of the broad middle of the country. They were thinking constantly, how will this play with the sort of you know, 65 to 70% of American voters in the middle? And I think that that has largely changed. They're now thinking about how things play with their base first. And politics, which used to be, uh, to borrow a metaphor, sort of between the 40 yard lines um, uh, in football, has um, sort of now moved uh, you know, wildly away from that. What does give me some hope in the longer term, because we are in South Carolina, where the motto is? Dumb
2: There we Spiro Spiro, Well I'll uh, that
3: hope. The history of this country is filled with examples of getting it wrong, taking a step or two back, maybe even three, and then getting it right eventually. Uh, I think this sort of arc of American history suggests that we'll eventually get to a better place and we'll eventually uh, move past this. Um, that's sort of always been uh, who we are and what we do. But no, for now, it's it's pretty discouraging. I mean, look, you know, most times uh, it's been a crisis that breaks the fever. Uh, and we had a crisis. We had a once-in-century pandemic uh, that wasn't as devastating, and that didn't uh, break the fever. It only exacerbated uh, partisan tensions. It was one more log on the, f- the burning flames of our polarized times. It just, everything was uh, sort of amplified because of that. More red, more blue. Mass vaccines. It was all immediately partisan fodder. So that's a, that's a pretty grim, a grim note, but I think that's sort of where we are. Thank you, Bakari. Oh, 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 Bakari's a great guy. He came sure. all the way to Charleston for this. Let's yeah. give him a round of applause for doing this. Appreciate you, man.
2: Oh wait, wait! Do you have any other books coming out?
3: Not yet. No. <laughs> oh. But I'll, I'll alert you though. Please do. Oh I will. Yes. Yeah,
2: for sure.
1: How about you, Bakari?
2: I'm gonna have another children's book coming out, and then another adult book next. Next after the, after the midterms. I've been a right machine.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Bakari. Um, thank you for this conversation. Um, I'm gonna leave on while um, I breathe. I hope so. I think I think that is um, where we all need to stand. And thank you so much. Um, for each one of you for being here thank
0: you. thank you for listening please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes to read a transcript of this episode to buy the books discussed here and for more information about our sponsors bookfinity.com and Buxton Books Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment Cheers